please turn to John chapter 1 verse 6. While you're turning, the story is told of a couple that took their son, age 11, and their daughter, 7, to Carlsbad Caverns. As usual, when the guide reached the deepest point in the cavern, the guide turned off all the lights to dramatize how completely dark and silent it is below the Earth's surface. I've taken the tour, and it is very impressive. It really is. Very dark, indeed. Uh, the inside of a hat sounds brilliantly lit compared to that, really. But the little girl, suddenly enveloped in utter darkness, was frightened and began to cry. Immediately was heard the voice of her brother. Don't cry. Somebody here knows how to turn the lights on. (laughs) Well, we're going to look today at the light of the world and see that indeed somebody definitely does know how to turn the lights on. We're in the prologue of John's Gospel, his introduction, if you were. It's the first 18 verses, and I'm kind of putting them under a microscope. Some of you may be wondering, is he going to go this slow the whole time? No. Uh, We will pick up speed, definitely. But these verses are so key because they set the stage for all that John's going to be telling us in his Gospel. Now, last time, we saw that the Word was God, the Creator, the Source of Life and Light. In the first five verses. And that's setting us up, of course, for later on in verse 14, when the Word becomes flesh. But that last phrase there, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend or suppress it, that makes John's transition into the next section that we'll look at today, where he focuses on the light, the idea of light. So, the light of the world is what we'll be looking at today in verses 6 through 13. This falls neatly into two halves, actually. The first half, verses 6 through 8, is not about the light at all, but about a a person who is a witness to the light. And we'll look at that. And then verses 9 through 13 talks about the light himself. Now, First verse then, verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. It's kind of almost jarring to us because we were reading about the Word who was eternally there and is himself God and created everything and is the source of all life and light. And then all of a sudden, we're talking about John the Baptist. It strikes me a little funny. I think there's, there are some good reasons for it, because John the Baptist is enormously significant. If you recall, the other three Gospels all begin very soon with, John's, with, uh, with John the Baptist's ministry. They may have some genealogy, but they jump into John the Baptist right away. Why? Well, first of all, I think there was a personal significance to John the Baptist for the Apostle John. It's practically John's signature in his gospel not to refer to himself by name. This is humility, I think, as much as anything. Uh, As we mentioned in the introduction, church tradition, the internal and external evidence is all solid. John wrote this gospel. There's no two ways about it. But, having said that, he does tend not to mention himself by name. 
So, when John mentions two disciples of John the Baptist turning to follow Jesus, it's interesting that he doesn't mention their names. Uh, This is in chapter 1, verse 35. It says, And the next day John was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus as he walked, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Hmm. Who were these two guys? Well, later, John does identify one of them. One of the two who heard him speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. That's in John 1.40. We never do find out who the other guy was. Okay. Well, if you have a missing person in John's Gospel, it's probably John. And so, here we are. Uh, the other, Following his normal pattern, then, the other person may well have been John the Apostle. Who was, the, who was perhaps a follower of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was also significant to his followers, and they were multitudes. Uh, multitudes, in fact, were baptized by John. It says all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. That's in Mark chapter 1. And we have similar reports in Matthew 3 and in Luke 3. So, multitudes. So many people are going out that you could say, yeah, everybody's done this. Everybody's been out to hear John the Baptist. Everybody's been out you know, to be baptized. Now, I'm sure there were some holdouts. Probably most of the Pharisees, for instance. But nonetheless, he had huge popularity, huge impact. Some even thought, dare I say it, that John might be the Messiah. Because the messianic expectation for those who knew their Old Testament prophecy was running high. And, you know, as we all get when times get rough with the Roman occupation, they were like, now now would be a good time, Lord. (laughs) You know. Kind of reminds me of Star Trek, you know, where Captain Kirk's always flipping open his communicator. Now would be a good time, Scotty. You know, (laughs) beam me out of here. But anyway... Some, some actually did think that John was the Messiah. Uh, it says in Luke chapter 3, verse 15, The people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether or not he was the, he was the Christ. Now, this belief was persistent. Matter of fact, when Paul, years later, was in Ephesus, he encountered followers of John the Baptist. In Ephesus, that's... Israel, Turkey, you know, long ways away. Um, that's in Acts chapter 19, uh, verses 1 through 7. They ask them, you know, what happened when they were baptized, and they said, well, you know, we were, you know, we were baptized in John's ba- uh, baptism. Oh, well, there's something past John. They were unaware of that. So, matter of fact, there's even a religion in the world today, a uh, very small one. It's called Mandaism. And it's uh, got sixty to 70,000 adherents, or at least it did before the first Iraq war. Uh, they mo- live mostly in southern Iraq, and they claim to follow John the Baptist. They reject both Jesus and Muhammad, which gets them in trouble from all quarters, basically. Uh, so, there you go. I don't know if there's a lineal descent there or not, but I just thought it odd. There's actually a group who's still following John the Baptist. So this was something that, because of personal significance, because of significance on the scene, and because of people's reactions to him, was necessary 
for the gospel writers to deal with. But there's more than that. You, you might think, if the early Christians found themselves at odds with the disciples of John the Baptist, that the move would be to discredit John. But the exact opposite happens. They put, a lot of, they put a lot of confidence in John, and the reason is John the Baptist also had a prophetic significance. And that prophetic significance uh, is never in any way downplayed. Malachi prophesied in Malachi 4.5, in the last book of the Old Testament, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, Elijah the prophet, there's a phenomena in prophecy where it's as if you have two mountain peaks, and you can see the mountain peaks, you can't see the intervening valley. Okay? Christ's first coming and second coming is along those lines. How do you reconcile Isaiah 53, the suffering, and Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, the ruling? Well, the answer is there's a valley in between. Daniel chapter 9, as we talked about a few weeks back, has that same valley. There's a 2,000-year gap there. It's almost as if it doesn't. this present age didn't exist. <coughs> well, Elijah definitely is coming, as Malachi said, before the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a tremendous day of judgment. It begins with the rapture, goes all the way through the tribulation, and includes... Christ's thousand year reign up to that final rebellion and the new heavens and the new earth. I send you to look at 1 Peter there uh, where Peter references the day of the Lord containing all those events. So specifically though they're focusing in on God's day of judgment that inaugurates the kingdom. That's kind of the central issue there. Well Elijah is going to come before that. Matter of fact, I, I believe that uh, the likely identity of one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11, uh, 3 through 12, is Elijah. Now, whether the other one's Enoch or, or Moses, I'll, I'll leave you to worry about. I'm not sure. Uh, but I am pretty sure Elijah's one of them because of Malachi 4 5. Jesus said that all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Okay, so we have to have one. We have to have Elijah at the end of time. But Jesus said, if you can accept it, we've got another Elijah here, an An Elijah. Okay, and that's what he's saying, not literally, because that Elijah is in heaven awaiting you know his chance to come back down the scene, but. Figuratively, John the Baptist fulfilled that forerunner position for Jesus Christ. So just as Christ comes twice, there are two Elijahs. You have one that comes as the Messiah's forerunner when he comes to suffer, and the other one who comes before the day of the Lord when the Messiah is going to establish his rule. Peaks of the mountains. Don't see the valley in between. Now, I have another, another passage that's quoted, and it's interesting how it's quoted also in fulfillment of prophecy relative to John the Baptist. And that's Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. A voice is calling, 
clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be filled up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Interestingly enough, though this passage is a unit, I think you can see the two mountain peaks here too. Okay, the voice in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, is the only part, verse 3, is the only part that's quoted referring to John the Baptist. They stop at that point. Jesus did something similar to this when quoting an Old Testament prophecy uh, in in uh, the synagogue in Capernaum. He said that um, he said that he was come that day to proclaim the favor, year of the favor of our God. And the, if you look at the Old Testament verse, it goes on to say, "And the day of the judge of judgment." Okay, he stopped right before the second clause. Why? Because there's 2,000 some odd years between those two events. And then he stopped, rolled up the scroll, and said, This day has this been fulfilled in your hearing. So that was the approach here that we're seeing with John the Baptist. Only verse 3 got fulfilled. The other two verses... Valleys being lifted up, mountains and hills being made low, the rough ground becoming a plain, broad valley, that sort of thing, the glory of the Lord being revealed, and everybody sees it. Okay, Those are all things that refer to the day of the Lord. So John the Baptist was fulfilling the first part. The other Elijah, the real Elijah, gets to fulfill the second part. Okay, Same gap. John the Baptist was preparing the way for the Lord our God, by the way. Who did he prepare the way, the way for? Jesus. So who's the Lord our God? Jesus. Yeah. Just totally as an aside, but this is yet another proof of the deity of Jesus Christ. Funny how you keep running into those every place you turn. Now, what did Jesus himself say about John the Baptist? What was his estimate of him? Jesus himself said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, and here's the curious thing, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. See that dispensational break there? Before the new covenant and and, and afterwards. Said from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Oh, that's uh, Matthew chapter eleven, verses eleven through fifteen. Okay. Now, there was a man named John, sent from God. The Greek word there translated as there came as an aorist tense. It's a snapshot action. If you recall back in the first five verses, <coughs> the contrast that we saw in that all creation came into being, aorist tense, snapshot, with, you know, at, at creation, but the word 
was imperfect tense. It was a continuing action in the past. So when everything came into being, the word already was. Okay, That speaks to the eternality of Christ. Well, John the Baptist wasn't eternal. He came on the scene. Um, it's the, a definite contrast here between the imperfect tense used with the word, the word already was, but John the Baptist came on the scene, his snapshot. Um, the word translated sent here is the same word that gave us uh, the noun form our, uh, apostle. It means to send with a commission, send with authority, send with a purpose. So r- quite the opposite of demeaning John the Baptist, the approach that we have here following the Lord Jesus himself is to readily acknowledge his mission. And he was a man sent from God. Absolutely. But why did he come? We know his source. He came from God. What was his mission? We see that in verse 7. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. Now the word that we translate into witness, martyria, means uh, confirmation or attestation of the base, on the basis of personal knowledge or belief, testimony in court. It's a legal term. Um, we have gotten from that the word martyr, and that's somebody who sealed their testimony with their own death, if necessary. Interesting the difference between martyr in Christian terms and Islamic terms. Um, sealed with your own death versus sealed with others' deaths, I guess. But confirmation on the basis of personal knowledge, testimony in court, that's what John came for. That we might believe. And here we encounter probably, I think, I I can think of nothing else that would hold a candle to it. The most significant term in the Gospel of John. The little word believe. Greek word pistuo. There won't be a a test on that. but That word's used 98 times in John's Gospel. Nearly 100. And it means to consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust. That's an important thing to keep in mind because we have slight variations on that term in English that I think rob us of the real meaning. If we say that um, we know the facts about something, in the Reformation era they had a Latin term for that, they called it the notia, or the notia, it'd be another pronunciation. We know the notia, we know the details. Okay, it'd be like saying, "Well, I believe it's 72 degrees outside." Okay, that's an acknowledgement of facts. That does not constitute biblical faith. That's not faith in the sense that that uh, John would have understood faith. That's just knowledge of facts. We can even agree with the facts, and that would be a census in Latin. The idea that, uh, that yeah, that fact's probably true. I can, oh, look at that other stool over there. It's identical to the one I'm sitting on. 
I know I could know all kinds of details about it. I can know the tensile strength of the metal that it's made out of, uh, the angles that it's bent. Uh, you know, we could even work out if I had the correct engineering experience how much weight that that could hold, and all those details. I could, uh, I suppose, I could, uh, I could have a magnetic stress analysis done on the bends and stuff like that to make sure that they were, were strong enough. All that information, I could say, yeah, that information is probably true. Okay, I could assent to that information. Is that chair doing me a bit of good? No, not one bit. Why? Because I don't rely on it yet. I think this is important because many people trust not in Jesus Christ, but in their orthodoxy. I go to the right church. We hold the right tenets. You know, I'm okay with God, therefore, right? No. No. Because the root idea is the final thing. It's not notia, it's not a census, it is fiducia in Latin, or trust is the key idea to biblical faith. What am I relying on? Am I relying on God's grace through Jesus Christ, through faith alone, plus nothing? What am I relying on? Why do I say plus nothing all the time? That's an irritating habit of mine. Well, I say that because it throws in very stark relief the fact that if I start trusting in faith plus, the plus soon ruins the faith. If it's faith plus how committed I am. Now, if I have a low ebb day for commit for commitment, you know, do I lose my salvation? You know. If I say I trust that chair over there, uh, but by the way, I, I'm going to you know, tie a rope to the ceiling and you know, fasten it securely around me just in case the chair gives way. Do I trust the chair? No, I trust the rope. See, so when you, when you have a faith plus condition, it soon becomes all about the plus and not about the faith. Also, I guess it's worth adding that faith is not something you have in a vacuum. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in Jesus Christ. So it's not, well, I've got so much faith and anybody that has an equal amount of faith must be all right with God no matter what the object. No, not true. Uh, C.S. Lewis made the humorous remark that if that were true, then trusting and hanging a poached egg off your ear would save you. It'd be insane, but you know, if you, you know, if that were true, but it's not faith in sincerity. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in Jesus Christ. My faith is only as good as the object. If I trust the end table there, that little fold-out table to hold me, if I sit on it, my ta- my trust would be ill-founded. I guarantee you, and uh, so would my my seating. Uh, I'd find myself on the floor very quickly. Uh, so. That would, uh, that would not work. Why? Because the object of my faith was insufficient. But Jesus Christ is not insufficient. So, might believe. That was the purpose of John's witness. What was, what was he to do? He was to witness. He was to testify. Not even John was responsible for people's reception of his witness. He was just responsible for the witness. But the purpose was that people might believe. Now, 
That's important finding it right here at the very beginning in John's prologue because in the epilogue, at the end of John's gospel, he tells us what his purpose was in writing. And he indicated that he wrote, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's John chapter 20, verse 31. Some writers announce their purpose at the beginning, some announce them at the end. And in John's instance, he liked to let you read it all the way through, then tell you what he'd done to you. Uh, so, he told you, then he told you what he told you. And uh, that's, that's the approach he took here. So, what is his purpose here? That you might believe. John's Gospel is the most explicitly evangelical book in the New Testament. With Romans, perhaps a close, a close second. But John has, has stated his purpose. I'm writing. I used, I used the word believe 98 times because I'm writing that you would believe. And that believing you'd have life. So you, ex, you can expect, and sure enough, we will see lots of statements about believing in John's Gospel. So, so just to summarize that, John came as a witness to the very simple fact that there are no other conditions for salvation other than simple trust in Jesus Christ. He came to point out he's the one, to point to Jesus, because it's all about Jesus. I think there's a message there for us, because we're called to be witnesses also. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. Sitting here in Greenville, Texas, I think we're close to the remotest parts of the earth from Jerusalem. Um, and you know, we're still called to be his witnesses. Now, we know John the Baptist was sent from God. He had a witness to be um, uh, a witness to be a mission. Let me try that again: a mission to be a witness. And what's his identity, though? Because the burning question people had is he, in fact, the Christ? Ben said there are two ways of spreading light. One's, one is to be the candle, and the other is to be the mirror that reflects it. And so we hear about John in verse 8. He was not the light, but he came to, set, to testify about the light. By the way, you may have noticed by now, and just you know, kind of clue you into this, as, so you can read John's gospel for all it's worth. John loves bookends, and he loves stating things positively, negatively, and positively again, or vice versa. He wants, he likes to nail things down. Okay, so he's already told you that John the Baptist came as a witness. Then he tells you he's not the light, and then he turns around and tells you again he's a witness to the light. Okay, I think. Um, that he likes to nail, he just likes to make sure you got it, you know. That's um, probably a good thing for me. This is why, even as a as a young Christian, I had a real love for the Gospel of John because I could understand him. You know, he made sure I got it, and not everything is that clear. Paul expects you to do a lot of the work yourself. John does it for you, and I like that about John. Uh, so, he was not the light. John is absolutely clear that John the Baptist is not the light. He's not the Messiah. He's not that eternal light. But what he was, was a testimony to the light. He pointed people to Jesus. 
Men and women, that's all we got to do. Is point people to Jesus. We're not sources of light either. We are reflectors. We are mirrors. We reflect Jesus Christ. And how do you do that? By testifying to Him. By telling people. Now, it's very interesting then that He shifts to talking about the light. The true light. Verse 9. says, There was... Now, verse 6, it was, There came... Verse 9, it's, there was. Okay? Imperfect tense. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 49.6, He, that is God, says to the Messiah, It's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Everywhere. Now, there is some doubt whether the phrase coming into the world refers to every man or the true light. Um... I can't decide it. I've wrestled with it and wrestled with it. And I finally come to the conclusion, you know, it doesn't matter a lot. Okay, does it say that there is that true light which, coming into the world, the light coming into the world, enlightens every man? Or does it say that there was that true light which enlightens every man coming in, as he's coming into the world? I don't know. In either case, the true light enlightens each and every human being. So it doesn't really matter, does it, um, which way you take it. It uh, grammatically works exactly equally well either way. And uh, a lot of ink has, and a lot of paper has been wasted on this one. And I don't know. There's probably not a way to decide it, nor is it important. It would be funny if John did that on purpose, uh, you know, just to, just to make both points simultaneously. And when we get to heaven, he's, all, he's having a good belly laugh at our expense. <laughs> for getting all hung up on it. But the Greek word translated every here, little word, every or all, is singular. Referring to a group, but it's a singular word. Grammatically, that indicates that it's emphasizing the individual members of the class. Not the class as a whole, but the individual members. That's why the translation every or each or any. Okay? Now that's important because some folks, because of our spiritual deadness, would say that we are totally unenlightened. Okay, um, We're dead in trespasses and sins, uh, it says in Ephesians 2. And they, the reasoning goes something like this, well, if you ask a dead man to do something, what kind of response do you get? Not much, yeah, that sort of thing. But you have to ask yourself, when you say somebody's dead, in what sphere? In what, relative to what are they dead? Okay? So, for instance, when it said we were, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, were we still walking around? Were we still talking? Are we still going to work in the morning? You know, that's eating meals, that sort of thing? Yes, we are. We're doing all these activities, but we're dead. Dead in what regard? Dead in terms of divine life. Okay? Nobody's saying we've got that divine life. But are we so dead we don't have the capability to think, reason, walk around? 
Well, I think it would be the case if it weren't for God's grace. If it weren't for God's grace, I think we would be so dead that there, you know, well, face it, we are under a death sentence already because of our sin. So we'd probably not even be walking around, okay, if it weren't for God's grace. But, what does the true light do? It lights, enlightens, illuminates each and every person in the world. Each and every person. So our natural inability is not the issue. Yes, we have to have God's grace, but God's given it to every person. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Titus 2.11 So, the true light, if you want to use that imagery, the grace of God actively, all of those things indicate that God has worked within human beings to enable them to believe in Jesus Christ. So, we have the ability to respond to God's light. Unfortunately, that response has not usually been positive, but that is our own will is to blame for that. And that's what we encounter in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Now, we learned in verse 3 that the Word, the true light, is the Creator God. The Greek word translated know here means to indicate that one does know, to acknowledge, to recognize. Give him his due, if you will. That's why the New International Version says he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. What irony. What irony. He enlightens the entire world. He made the entire world. He came into the world, and the world goes, Who are you? Doesn't recognize him. Doesn't acknowledge him. Matter of fact, the world killed him. What supreme irony. Now, you might understand why a world of godless Gentiles wouldn't recognize their creator. They've been worshipping statues and such. But surely you would think Israel would recognize him, right? And yet, what do we read in verse 11? He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. The uh, Greek word translated his own is neuter here. The things which are his. Bible and basic English has. Or the complete Jewish Bible has. He came into his own homeland. His own homeland. So... Basically, he came to Israel. And the word translated, those who were his own, is a masculine plural. His own people. Okay? Um, that's, there's, oh gee, what do we got? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven different translations. Among them, the uh, New English and the New, uh, New Living Testament, for instance. That translated, his own people. So he came to his own land. He came to Israel. He came to his own people. Surely you would expect them to recognize the visitation of their Lord. Wouldn't you? But they didn't receive him. The Greek word there we translate receive really means to welcome. They didn't welcome him. He was not welcome in his own land by his own people. 
Therefore, neither Jew nor Gentile gave the true light the reception he deserved. They all rejected the light. You reject light, you get darkness. Okay? But, I love that word but, because this would be a really gloomy story if that's where it ended. Yeah. I mean, I could, I could envision an ending like that. You know, after, well, you know, they didn't, they didn't receive him. The Gentiles didn't acknowledge him. The Jews didn't receive him. And therefore God said, that's it. I've had it with, him, with humanity. And judgment fell and that was the end. Amen. You could, you know, it would be just. But that's not where it stops. Thank heaven. The next little word here, but. I, I always say but is an interesting word because it always negates what went before. <laughs> and so, just as there was a problem with not getting received or welcomed, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So, some did receive him. Hallelujah. You know, in every age that's been the case. Some have responded. Some have responded in Israel. Some have responded among the Gentiles. Always. So the rejection wasn't total. Thank heaven. Now, the Greek word translated received here is related to the word that we, words we had before, like comprehend or suppress in verse 5, or receive or welcome in verse 11. So he's playing on this. The world couldn't comprehend or they couldn't suppress. Maybe a double entendre. They didn't, they didn't get it and they weren't able to suppress it. Um, that's, one, that's one. Then in verse 11, yeah, we had, okay, and Israel didn't receive, didn't welcome him. Again, a related word. But then in verse 12, those who did receive him, those who did receive him, they entered, uh, to receive, that Greek word means to enter into a close relationship, receive, make one's own, apprehend. Okay, how do you make a relationship with Jesus Christ your own? How do you make him your savior? The burning question John wants to address. And what he's been building up to in this prologue. As many as received him. Now, how do you receive Christ? Some say, well, I say, I pray to prayer. Okay, praying a prayer is not a bad thing to do. I pray with people when I lead them to Christ. Does the prayer save them? No. That's a legitimate response to talk to God about what you're doing here. But, no, the prayer doesn't save you. Faith saves you. So, it's interesting to me that John says that. Because he says, as many as received him, and then jump over a little bit, even to those who believe in his name. Okay? So, there's a parallel here, isn't there? John, once again, has given us a bookend. Okay? On one end, we have receiving. On how to apprehend, how to make Christ your own. On the other end, we have believe. Receive, believe. That's how you receive Christ. It's not whether you walk forward at an evangelistic meeting or whether you pray a prayer. Now, all those are good things. But that's not what saves you. Faith saves you. 
98 times in this gospel. John's going to make the same point. It's not believe and be baptized. It's not believe and commit. It's not even believe and repent. You know, Though, of course, if you've got bad thinking, you might have to change your mind about some things in order to believe. I'm not saying that. But John actually never even uses the word repent, which is an amazing thing. Especially since he talked about John the Baptist so much, it's kind of hard to talk about John the Baptist and not say the word repent. Uh, <laughs> that was his, his thing. Uh, salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, plus nothing. And we make Jesus Christ our own by simple trust. Don't complicate what God has made simple. It's deep enough for a squad of theologians to think about for eternity, and it's simple enough for an infant who can barely speak English to understand. The Greek word translated right here, he gave them the right to become children of God. It's a Greek word, exousia. Uh, King James translates it power, if you have a King James. Um, there's two words for power, exousia and dynamis. Dynamis means ability. And you know we think of dynamic and dynamo and things like that. Uh, sometimes we think of dynamite. I, I shy away from that one a little bit because dynamite blows things up and it's destructive. Yeah. <laughs> so dynamo is maybe better. Um, exousia, though, means authority. Okay. Now, exousia includes dynamis. Okay. Uh, the Roman authority was not just moral authority; it was might. You know, so they, it's an inclusive idea, but it's more here the notion of a privilege or a right. And in fact, my favorite translation would be privilege. It implies a title, a warrant, an authorization, carrying with it all needed powers. To become children. The Greek word here, technon, means that which is born. Okay, it's pretty simple. But remember, we've had other words like Paul liked to use, weos, which means a mature son. Okay. Well, I think John prefers technon because he's thinking about our new birth in Christ. And we are infants in Christ. We're born of, of God's action. Whereas weos, Paul likes that because he's thinking of our position in Christ. We're placed in Christ as mature sons. So... That privilege of being a child of God is given to all those who trust in His name. Name to uh, to a Hebrew thinker, especially, is the sum of all characteristic qualities which attach to the bearer of that name. For instance, um, my brother's messianic synagogue that he goes to. Baruch Hashem. Okay, Hashem means the name. Literally, it's blessed the name. Okay, we, and it's because out of reverence they don't pronounce God's personal name. But the interesting thing about that is when you say the name, you're referring to everything that the bearer of that name is. Okay, so it's not just a convenient designation because there could have been, uh, you know, Oh, other rab, uh, Rabbi Yeshua's. Okay, and it's not even just that it's Rabbi Yeshua, you know, Dinatzorit, uh, from Nazareth or whatever. You know, this is all 
rather about who he is. That's why John spent his first five verses convincing us that the Word was God. So, those who place their faith, their trust, in who Jesus is. Um, Barclay's translation, But to all who did receive him, he gave the privilege of becoming God's children. That privilege was given to those who do believe that he really is what he is. I like that translation. So, how do you become a child of God? Believe. Faith. But, in characteristic fashion, John also tells us how not to become a child of God. He's got three things. We're born not of blood. Now, what does that mean? Actually, it's not as foreign as it sounded at first. Um, The blood concept there referred to genealogical pedigrees. Okay, like we say somebody's bloodline or he's a blue blood, meaning he's of noble uh, background. I, I, I once knew some people who were very enamored with their genealogy and they would have been better advised to pay attention to their personal lives. Uh, but I, I'm fascinated with genealogy. I am. I, I love the history. But i got to tell you, just because one of my ancestors was on the Mayflower doesn't make me a better person. I didn't do it. Actually, the ancestor that was on the Mayflower fell overboard and they had to fish him out of the ocean. But uh, figures, my ancestor, he'd be a klutz. But anyway. Uh, okay. <laughs> <But>, I <laughs> got on there twice, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I'll do anybody better. My ancestor was on the Mayflower two times. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, that's why we have the New International Version translates it not of natural descent or not because of bloodline, the complete Jewish Bible says. H.A. Ironside had a great comment about that. He said, this means that even if your parents were two of the best Christians that ever lived, they cannot give you divine life. They cannot communicate their new nature to you. It's only God who can do that. God has no grandchildren. He has no grandkids. You cannot inherit faith. Now, it's a great legacy to have if your, if your folks were, were vibrant Christians, but they can't believe for you. God has no grandkids. You must simply trust Jesus Christ and Him alone. Okay. The second thing we're not born of in this new birth is we're not born of the will of the flesh. That refers to parents wanting a child. The NIV has uh, human desire. Or another translation has nor by human choice. Now, small extension here, but I think it's justified. You cannot willpower yourself to be a child of God. I know willpower is is a noun, not a verb, but I decided to take a little freedom with the English language there. It's not your willpower that makes you a child of God. One time, as an unbeliever, and as an agnostic as to God's very existence, I decided one time, uh, in my youthful exuberance, that I was going to be perfect. I was just going to decide to be perfect, not to do anything wrong. I don't think I lasted 30 minutes. I probably lasted a lot less than that if I had true perspective on myself. But I thought I was doing pretty good for the first few minutes. Of course, there was nobody around. Uh, so that made it real easy. <laughs> yeah, then I woke up. 
pretty close. You know, and so it didn't last long. That was kind of a rude awakening to me. Uh, how just how you know, I wasn't very young, but I guess I'd not given a lot of thought to just how hard it is to do the right thing. And I didn't make it very far. So it's not your willpower. Human will is not going to make you a child of God. You simply trust Jesus Christ and Him alone. It's not the will of man. And that actually, the word translated man there is masculine. It means a male or a husband. It's not a father's desire for children either. Uh, husband's will is the NIV. Uh, uh, husband's decision, the NET. Husband's desire to have a child, God's word translation. Now, by extension, pushing that just a little bit, what would that mean in this realm? Well, no one else can make you a child of God. You know, again, you may have godly parents. They wish the best for you. Your preacher may want you to come to Christ. Nobody can do that for you. Absolutely impossible. No one else can make you a child of God. You simply trust Jesus Christ alone. Okay, how do we apply this? Well, the main application, I think, comes in the area of sharing Jesus for the first half. As John the Baptist teaches us several things, that we should reflect the true light. And how do we do that? By witnessing to Jesus Christ. But notice, who does the enlightening? God does. The Holy Spirit convicts people of sin, righteousness, and just and judgment. We do not. Okay? All we are to do is to give a testimony. It's not my responsibility to convict people. I take a lot of comfort in that. Because I would dismay trying to get through to some folks. And yet I've seen God get through people that I never thought anybody would ever get through to them. Well, God can do that. I cannot. So God does the enlightening while we're doing the reflecting of the light by witnessing. We make Jesus Christ our own. How? By simple trust. Don't complicate the message. God made it simple on purpose. Don't complicate it. Okay, now, that's about sharing Jesus. We learned that from John the Baptist. So how do you become a child of God? Well, simple trust in Jesus, where we left off the last part. How do you not become a child of God? Pedigree or good blood? God has no grandkids. Willpower? That doesn't make you a child of God. You know, Well, I'm going to tighten up my willpower and I'm going to quit smoking and I'm going to quit drinking and I'll be a child of God. No, you won't. You'll be a reform sinner. And you'll substitute one sin for the other. Probably pride. Yeah. (laughs) So, hey, look at me. I quit smoking. Yeah. Yeah, look at you. Okay. Um, So, not by pedigree or good blood, not by willpower. And no no one else can make you a child of God. Okay. I know you folks, and so it seems a funny place in a way to put an invitation, but maybe you've settled all these issues, but around you are a whole bunch of people that haven't. Okay, And I would just exhort you to please, when you're dealing with family, friends, etc., not to make a lot of assumptions. Okay? 
because people may have a faith that is just a knowledge of the facts. They may have a faith that is even an assent to the truth of those facts, but a faith that is not relying on Jesus Christ. That is fatally falling short. Okay? And it's so tragic. So many people set under the preaching of the gospel Sunday in, Sunday out, and miss it by a hair's breadth because they don't actually place their faith in Jesus Christ. They don't actually trust and rely on Him. So, on behalf of those people, please extend the invitation to them to rely on Jesus Christ. Okay, Can we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord God, we thank You that You are the light. You are the light of the world. Lord, I pray for all of us that you'd polish our mirrors, that we'd reflect your light to the world around us. Lord, help us to testify accurately and simply of you so that people can trust you. Father, I pray that your power would enlighten all those that we come in contact with. That you would draw them to yourself. So that the Lamb of God would receive the relationships, the praise that he is due. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.